You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to To Dine for the Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Randy Zuckerberg. I like to refer to myself as like a professional mom. I've seen enough and I've lived enough lives that like there's almost nothing an entrepreneur can throw at me that would shock me. That is Randy Zuckerberg, an entrepreneur and a visionary. And yes, the sister of Mark Zuckerberg. After graduating from Harvard with a BA in psychology, Randy was an early employee at her brother's new startup, Facebook. There she created Facebook Live, learned the ins and outs of how people consume content, and helped shape Web 2. Later, she applied these skills to combine her two passions, technology and entertainment. Now, Randy is a pioneer for women in cryptocurrency and NFTs with her company, The Hug, an inclusive social curation platform that helps discover and share NFT creators and communities. Not only is Randy deeply entrenched in the tech community, but she is also an accomplished artist and producer who has performed on Broadway, won three Tony Awards, and hosts a weekly business talk radio show. Randy Zuckerberg means business on Sirius XM. 
I can't wait for you to enjoy my conversation with Randy Zuckerberg. Hi, Randy. Thank you for doing this. It's such a pleasure and honor to talk to you today and for having you on to Dine for the Podcast. So happy. Thank you. I'm going to start the way I begin every podcast by asking the guest, where is your favorite restaurant? And I'm really interested because you really have been to, I'm sure, a plethora of amazing New York City restaurants as far as also with restaurants around the world. Where would you choose as your absolute favorite restaurant? Oh my gosh, that's an amazing, that's that's such an interesting question because I feel like I have like comfort restaurants and I have like special occasions. Yes. But I think like the most special place I've ever been is for my husband's 30th birthday, a bunch of us watched the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Yes. And actually got on a plane and flew to <laughs> Japan and <laughs> ate at that restaurant. Um, it was like the craziest thing we've ever done. It was like eight of us. And we literally went to Japan for like four hours to eat at a restaurant and fly home. Okay, first of all, th- that may be the best answer to this question I've ever got <laughs> because only the Randy Zuckerberg of the world could answer it in such a fashion. What was it like to be there? Well, first of all, it was so funny because we kept getting him to try to watch this documentary because we all knew like we had booked our travel already. And he was like, I'm really busy with work. I don't have time to like watch this like random movie. And who was this? Who was this your husband? My husband. This okay. is my husband. And I'm like, no, really, like watch this movie, like, please, because we were, we were leaving like the next day. And he's like, no, I have a lot of work to do. And then we went to the airport and luckily you have a long flight flight. It's a great yeah. movie to watch on a long flight. Exactly. We got to the airport and like all of his friends were in the airport. And so we flew there and it's uh, this little sushi restaurant mm-hmm. that has, I think, only eight or 10 seats yes. in the restaurant. And it's it's a real experience. Like people, the people who work there have apprenticed there for mm-hmm. years. I mean, I think you have to work there for two years just making rice before mm-hmm. you graduate. <laughs> And, um, because there is an actual precise way to make yeah. rice. And if you can't do that, you cannot totally. advance. You can't yes. do anything. And this like little old man, Jiro, mm-hmm. is there and he's making the sushi and he hands it to you and mm-hmm. makes eye contact with you. Mm-hmm. And you have to like take it out of his hands and like eat it, like keeping the eye contact. Yes. And it's it was like the craziest experience in my life. Like I wasn't, I'm not even sure if I like enjoyed the food because I was so stressed out by like, I have to do this correctly. But it was it was such an amazing experience. It's so funny. So I recently interviewed Simon Sinek and we talked about what makes a foodie and what is not a foodie. And he said, if you will get on a plane for a restaurant that puts you in the foodie category. So Randy, if you weren't before, you are officially a foodie. Let me clarify that by saying a decade ago before I had children, Mm -hmm. I think I fit into that category. I can't honestly say with three kids that I would get on a plane for a restaurant. I know. I feel like there was a moment in my life that I didn't see things like that. And now that moment has subsided, but I still have very fond memories. Okay. And I never ask for a second restaurant choice, but with you, I'm going to, and that's because of your love of Broadway. Do -hmm. you have a go-to theater district, New York City restaurant that if you, in a pinch, if you had to get in somewhere, that's where you'd go. 
Interesting. Okay. There's, there's a place that I love called Bar Centrale. Yes. It's like in a townhouse. It's a little, like you wouldn't even really know it's there, but I feel like all the like theater insiders go there to have drinks and to eat after the theater. And you can always see really interesting people. Like every time I've been there, it's like Hugh Jackman is in the next (laughs) booth. And it's like, I feel like it's a very insidery place that you have to know about. And that's where I go to. I knew you would have an answer. That's why sometimes you ask the question because you know the answer is going to be good. For me, for those listening, my go-to theater spot is La Masseria, which is all right around the corner. And it just like always delicious Italian get in. Perfect. Okay. Let's dive in here because we have a lot of ground to cover. You are a truly fascinating person. We could take this in a million different directions. I'm going to start by asking, growing up, were there any unwritten rules your parents had And what was the environment like growing up in your household? Not really. My parents are both doctors. My dad's dental office was inside our home, like on the ground floor. Oh, it was? One of these owned homes where it was like a doctor's office on the ground floor. And then our family lived uh, above it. So I think, you know, I had a lot of exposure to tech and to entrepreneurship my Mm -hmm. whole life because it was always like, okay, if you have a free hour when you're done with your homework, like go downstairs to the dental office and help dad, you know, file patient records and help do these things. So I feel like I was always exposed to what it was like to be a small business owner. My interesting seeing tech. But I I will say that something that was really interesting is that my parents never forced any of us, I'm one of four siblings, never even like suggested that any of us go into medicine. Really? I think they knew in the back of their mind that the careers we would all have didn't even exist yet. They knew that. You felt like that was like intuitive. Yeah, I think like, you know, they never verbalized that. They never said that, but I feel like they, they understood that and, um, that's something that I've definitely tried to carry into my own parenting, yes. which is that, you know, why steer your children in a, in a direction that exists today? Because the, the jobs they'll have literally don't even exist yet. So like the best thing you could do is raise kids who are curious and are passionate and are, are open to new things. I'm a mom of three boys, eight four and five. And so I'm always looking for any uh, words of wisdom. When I think about you and your brother, obviously you, you and your, uh, your two other siblings, a brilliant family. So I'm always like, what happened in their households that produced such brilliance? <laughs> so thank you for kind of indulging me with that question. Because, you know, I always do believe that success leaves clues. And it sounds like your, your family was really amazing at like fostering an environment where you could be yourself. Totally. And yes. And I mean, I did a lot of stuff with theater and music and and Mm -hmm. studied that in depth. And, you know, my parents never shied away from that. They Mm -hmm. they were never like, hey, we're two doctors. Like, why do you (laughs) want to do rain it? Rain that Broadway thing in. (laughs) Yeah. No, I feel like they were always thinking, you know, having the right and left side of your brain in action at all times is just a a great thing for life. They always allowed us to pursue our passions. So definitely something that I'm trying to do in my own parenting. When you graduated from college, one of your first jobs was Ogilvy and Mather, I believe, right? An advertising agency. What did that early experience in that world teach you that you still use today? Oh, I mean, that was probably, that was one of the most important two years of my life. I think. Why? 
The first is that it taught me that sometimes the best job experiences are not the sexiest and most mm, exciting ones. Truth. Um, when I got staffed in Ogilvy, most of their business at the time was traditional marketing. They were doing a lot of like glamorous television campaigns, <laughs> the Super Bowl ads and things. And I got staffed on this like little startup within Ogilvy that was doing digital marketing. And I was so angry because... <laughs> All of my friends were on Super Bowl ads and like it was and talking. You're about like this, this digital marketing. Where's yeah. that gonna go? I was like, I'm in a dead end job. Like this digital <laughs> thing. I was like, I want to be on these like television sets with celebrities, like all my friends. And two years later, they were still getting coffee on television sets. And I had a whole team reporting to me and we were the fastest growing team inside the agency. Mm. And that was a real light bulb moment for me because I realized I was like, oh, like sometimes when everyone else is over here jockeying for the shiny thing, like the actual best thing you could do for your career is to be like the expert and the leader in the not sexy, not shiny thing and and grow with that. And I think that was like a very pivotal experience to have early in my career. And you you wrote a book. You've read several you've written several books, both children's books and adult books and for young career women. Was there anything you did wrong in those first few years that became a learning lesson for you that you then have imparted to young people as they begin their career? Oh yeah. I mean, I I am not qualified for anything that I've done in my life. Like I, there, not, not one thing that I've done in my life. Did I like go to school to learn it? You know, I spent a decade on the front lines of web two, like web two didn't exist. There was no playbook. There was like no course that I could take in school. I kind of stumbled into writing children's books. I didn't even have children of my own at the time, but as I was writing my first book, I was really doing a lot of questioning and soul searching about why there were no women working mm. in tech. Mm. And as I started writing my book, all my research kept coming back to like the first place that we lose women is at nine years old. Really? And so I kept going back to my publisher and I was like, why am I even writing a business book? Like I need to write a book for nine-year-old girls. Like I'm, I'm writing the wrong book. And she's like, okay, okay. Like write both. <laughs> like we'll, re we'll release both. And so I feel like a lot of the things in my life that I've done, I was not like qualified. I didn't study for it, but I think, you know, you just have to be really have your eyes open to opportunity and to the problems you want to solve. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. I recently interviewed Reshma Sojani with Girls Who Code. Oh, That's very much so in fabulous. line with what you do. Isn't she fabulous? Yes. And she said, you know, we teach our girls to be perfect and mm -hmm. we teach our boys to be brave. You were willing to not be perfect, to give it a go, to give it a shot. Where did that come from? Was that learned from your parents? Was that innate? You clearly are not a perfectionist if you're willing to just go out there and make it happen. I think it came from being a theater kid, to be totally honest. I got rejected so many times at a young age. Like I would go on auditions and I would just get flat out rejected or like booted out of the room or whatever. And if you can learn at seven or eight years old to like mm. put yourself out there, get rejected and then wake up the next morning and the world still turns and the sun still shines, like you basically learned like most of the skills you need to be resilient in life. Amen. Isn't that true? That's why I think, you know, I am so supportive of kids playing sports and doing theater and doing things where you like learn to lose and you learn to lay it all out and like not have the outcome that you want. Because otherwise I think it leads, if you don't have those experiences early on in life, you don't learn how to be rejected and you don't yes. learn how to take risks. Yes. That actually just makes my mother, you know, my parenting skills wheels turning, right? Like how can I put the, how can I put these kids in situations where it's just okay to fail? Yeah. Cause what you learn is you learn to believe in yourself. Like you learn that no one else's opinion matters except yes. your own opinion. Cause I, I would walk into a room and I would be like, you know what? Like these people probably aren't going to think I'm the best, but I think I'm the best. And that's yes. why I'm walking into this room. And I feel like you, you don't learn that unless you learn to fail. So uh, that's why I think, you know, even though theater ended up being a side passion for me in my life and a side hustle. I'm grateful that I spent so many years focused on it because I think most of the business skills that I learned, I learned from theater. Yes. And as you're saying that, there's a second component to what you said that I kind of want to underscore for listeners, because in addition to being willing to fail, your opinion of yourself 
has to be paramount to other people's opinion of you. And that's that's something you just said. And I think it's so important because as, as, as a storyteller myself, I know you're a storyteller as well. The story we tell ourselves is the most important story of what's possible. I had a theater teacher that really like was a a big mentor to me in my life. And he told me at one point, he's like, if you don't think that you're the best person for this part, why are you even auditioning? Like if you you don't think you're the best, then you're not going to convince anyone else that you're the best. So he's like, you have to start from a place of like being so sure of yourself that you convince other people. And, you know, it's the same if you're raising money for a startup, it's the same if you're hiring people, it's the same if like, you know, you're giving a speech or or something on stage. Like if you don't believe in yourself, there is no way that you're going to bring other people along for the ride. So that was, I think like that really stuck with me, those words. Absolutely. You're a serial entrepreneur and we could talk about the several companies that you've created, but I kind of want to deviate a little bit because you have been lucky enough to follow that personal passion we've talked about Broadway into producing for Broadway. And actually you're a Tony award winner. Is this correct? (laughs) I am. I mean, isn't that amazing to say, oh yeah, I've won a Tony. (laughs) It is is (laughs) wild. I, you know, it's a very funny story. I kind of like gave up on my theater dreams and uh, went out to Silicon Valley. And that was, you know, an incredible experience. Working uh, at a little place called Facebook, right? We know. Yes. Working at Facebook, working with, you know, investing and working with a ton of of other startups. And I was about to have my 33rd birthday. And I was, I had just found out that morning I was pregnant with our second son. And I got a call asking if I wanted to have a leading role on Broadway. And I thought someone was playing a joke on me. Like I I didn't audition. Like the last time I had been in a play was in high school. And I was like, who put you up to this? Like, I got you. Someone's like sick joke. And they were like, no, we, sorry, ma'am. Like we're, we're, we're putting on this eighties rock musical on Broadway. And we just thought if we had a tech personality that we brought into the show, we'd like sell tickets to a new group of people. So we just wanted Are you to- up for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, um, yeah, I, I just found out I was pregnant. And so they're like, maybe in a few months. And I'm like, Monday. I <laughs> Monday. And that was on a Thursday. I got that call. And by Monday, I had moved to New York and started rehearsing and had my Broadway debut two weeks later. Are so you kidding me? It was like a wild. And I was in it until I was like too pregnant, really, to, yeah. to bring that. Talk about the power of saying yes and jumping <laughs> and seizing the day, right? Good for you. It was a wild experience. But I quickly realized that performing eight shows a week was not really like a sustainable lifestyle when sure. you're toddlers. Um, and being pregnant. <laughs> yes. And and that's when I really got into the producing side of theater. Yeah. I, was, I love helping to put art out there and connecting with live audiences, but maybe I can do this using my Silicon Valley expertise and business expertise and not like actually have my body up on stage eight times a week. When you started producing, what was that experience like? And when you think about all of the skills you had to employ, what itch did that scratch? And and where did you find most satisfaction? 
Yeah. I mean, I think what shocked me was actually how similar it was to the dynamics of startups that I had worked with in Silicon Valley. I thought I'd be work- walking into this like brand new world. And it just, it felt very similar because mm. a show is is sort of just a mini startup. When you have a tech startup, you have an idea that you work on and then you try to go raise a, a seed financing round and then you hire a team and you build it up and you then you go raise more money and put out to the world. A show is sort of the same thing. You have like usually a writer with an idea. They get a little bit of seed financing. They flush it out. They put on like a staged reading of it and then try to raise a series A and take it to Broadway. And I was like, oh, I get this. Like this is a formula that I really understand because I've seen it over and over in Silicon Valley. But no one was using data. Like Could you imagine walking into a VC pitch and just being like, I'm raising $15 million because I like believe it in my heart, like Mm -hmm. you would get laughed out of the room. And so I quickly saw that applying some of that rigor and data that I had seen in, in startups into the arts would be a game changer. How do you use data when it's a fresh idea that is not a proof? You don't have a proof of concept. It's just an idea. And yeah. It, you know, how can you talk me through that? Like, how, how would you use data in a scenario like that? Yeah, I mean, listen, with the arts, some of it is always from the heart and some right. of it is like an emotional connection. But there are things like it is very easy to figure out what is a good and a bad month to open on Broadway. You know, like gotcha. the, yes. you look at the empirical data across the last 100 years and see that opening in February, <laughs> no bueno. <laughs> like, like it doesn't matter yes. what the show is. Like you yes. can see that. You can look at like the kinds of things that audiences have seen over the year and you can study how many seats are in a theater and if that matters to how long it will take for the show to make back its money. Like there, there's this beautiful theater called Circle in the Square. It's this tiny theater that's in the round. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the only Broadway theater where the audience sits completely around the stage. Awesome theater, impossible to make your money back because it's so, <laughs> it's so small. Yeah. So small. Like even yeah. if you sell it out every right. night, it's like, it's just so hard to make money back. So like little data points like that can yes. really help guide you as a producer and an investor into making smart choices about when you open, what theater you go into, things like that. And just no one was really using that data when I got into the industry. And so right off the bat, I think that's why we were so successful at the shows that we were producing, like winning things and recouping investment and stuff. Cause we were just applying like very simple mathematics and basic data into this that just no one else was doing. Right. And when you think about it too, it, it seems simple, but as you said, they're really two different worlds. And very often in the world of arts and entertainment, you get that side of the brain thinkers yeah. and that you really need the confluence of both sides to really make something happen. So that that makes complete sense. I want to talk a little bit about your work with Web3, Hug. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what you're doing with Hug and why it's so vital? Yes. Well, thank you so much. And, um, you know, I hope you can see that a through line of my career has always been about like a, a love and passion for the arts, but also like how to apply 
technical rigor and data mm-hmm. and how to kind of merge these two worlds. Yes. And so when Web3 came along, I felt like it was the it was the perfect blend of technology and the arts coming together. And so what we're building at Hug is we're building a platform and an incubator that allows small and medium-sized creators to launch their own NFT collections, to start their own Web3 projects. And uh, they can either go through our incubator and be handheld through the process, or they can just go straight onto our marketplace where we connect them with with collectors and, and buyers. It's been really incredible to work with creators who are have that, you know, risk-taking mentality like I've had my whole life. They're just they're diving into this new world of web three. They're crypto curious, but there's no playbook to anything yes. that any of us are doing. And uh, you know, we now have a, a community with hundreds of creators who are launching new projects and trying new techniques and finding collectors. So it's been really rewarding to see this. And I I think 10 years from now, like we're all going to be buying art this way and we're all going to be connecting with creators this way, but it's this very special moment where it it's new and cutting edge. Well, it kind of re- harkens back to how you, what you said in this conversation is that, you know, when you started in the tech world, you were like shocked at why there weren't, so, weren't any women and oh. you were working without a playbook. Here you are in a complete scenario that's working without a playbook. So I can see why you're thriving. Let's talk a little bit about why do you think the world of crypto is so male dominated and what do you think it would take for more women to enter that space? Yeah, well, it's funny because our little corner that we are in with Hug actually has a lot of women in it because we are we're dealing with art. Yes. But I think the thing that gets the most media noise about crypto is like the speculative trading, mm-hmm. people buying the different crypto tokens and coins and people buying board ape NFTs and selling them and trading them. Uh, but most people in our lives, like you don't buy art to make money. You buy art for your to home. To enjoy it. Yeah, to enjoy yeah. it. It speaks to you. You love it. You met the artist and you have feel a connection to them. Like when I look around my house, I have so much art and I have never once thought that I should sell any of mm-hmm. the pieces. So I, I have no idea why crypto, like why everyone got into this thinking that like it's only for assets that you sell and flip. Our little corner with Hug is not about flipping and selling art. It's about disintermediating galleries and middlemen and Mm -hmm. figuring out how all of us can be art collectors Mm -hmm. in a world that feels really elitist and feels locked out. And suddenly you have an opportunity to have direct relationships with artists buy from them directly. And you don't need to go through middlemen or you don't need to feel like you're locked out of of this world. So that's why I'm so passionate about it. But I I do think the space has attracted a lot of men because it is like the, the flipping and the speculative investing that gets all the attention. Well, it's democratizing art in a world, as you put it, that is elitist. Let's say it doesn't appear to be elitist. It is elitist. So like the fact that that you're taking it to the masses because yeah. art art is for everyone and it should be for everyone. So like, I love the space that you're working in. I'm curious though, you have truly worn so many hats, you know, not only as a podcaster, as an interviewer, uh, Zuckerberg Media, of all the things that you've done up to this point, mm. what feels 
most Randy? What feels like this is really me? Yeah. Well, I definitely feel most at home when I'm like advising and coaching entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and creators. I like to refer to myself as like a professional mom. I'm <laughs> I'm an amateur mom with my own children. Like I have no idea what I'm doing with my own kids, but like on a professional level, I feel like I've seen enough and I've lived enough lives that like, there's almost nothing an entrepreneur can throw at me that would shock me. And, And, and let me stop you that. Do you think it's because you were there for the early days of Facebook and saw it all so fresh and firsthand? Yeah. I mean, I was there for like, all of web two, like the birth of web two. Yes. You know, I was inside Facebook, but I saw Twitter come about YouTube, like all of these huge companies that LinkedIn, like that we use every day. Like I, I knew them from startups, from babies and saw them. And, and I've now invested in and advised more than 50 different companies. And I sit on multiple corporate boards. So there is very little an entrepreneur could say that would shock me at this point after everything that I've seen. And I feel like I'm, I'm able to like, like a mom to like be supportive when needed, give tough love when needed. Like, and that's, I think when I feel most alive is when I'm, you know, when I'm doing that. And like, I, at least once a day, I'm on some kind of advising or or mentoring call with an entrepreneur or creator. When you're on these calls with these young entrepreneurs, can you mention two mistakes or common things that you see that you would point out to a young entrepreneur? What are you seeing over and over again as mistakes that can be remedied? It's a great, great question. I think the first is that sometimes people are just afraid to get started. So they overthink things Mm -hmm. like on a lot of these calls I'll have an entrepreneur be like, I'm I'm thinking about fundraising. So I guess I'll spend the next few months making a deck and then I'll do this. And, and I'm like, no, no, no. You're just avoiding <laughs> this because you're scared of fundraising. Like, like you need to just start going out and talking to people tomorrow. Like no four months of making a deck. No, like no overthinking it. Just- Get to it. Yeah, just do it. <laughs> yes. So I that's like the tough, that's the tough love mom side mm-hmm. of me that's doing that. The other thing that I see is that sometimes when people are so in the weeds with their own business or their own project, they miss the bigger picture completely. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times I find myself on these calls telling people like, you're just sitting at one blackjack table. Like, how do you own the whole casino? Like, Mm. you know, this is not interesting to me if all you're doing is being like one blackjack dealer. That's no fun. Like, how do we scale this? Exactly. And then usually it's like one conversation and they're like, oh, I was so in the weeds that I like, I I missed the big picture of, of where I fit in. So that's, I think what's, what's really fun. And a lot, a lot of it is like, therapy and pep talks. I feel like half my time with entrepreneurs, I'm like a glorified therapist. Because it is a lonely journey. The entrepreneurial road, especially as a founder and coming up with an idea and birthing it, bringing it to life, you don't necessarily, I mean, you're incredibly well-connected, but the average person isn't. And so they're kind of siloed and they're thinking, gosh, how do I scale this? Yes. And there's all kinds of interpersonal dynamics. I've helped people break up with co-founders. I've helped people navigate really difficult situations where they're like uh, doing a startup with a significant other and it's not working out. I've had startups 
that like told me that they were pivoting into the porn industry. Do you know what I mean? Like I've literally (laughs) seen it all. I've seen it all. So like I said, there's just nothing I think an entrepreneur could tell me that would shock me at this point. And that's why it's like, when you're a teenager and you're like telling your mom that you went out partying and you think she's going to be shocked. And then she's like, honey, like, what do you think I did for like a decade when I was a teen? Like I have seen it all. Like that's where I feel like I'm in it with these entrepreneurs. Well, and also just the ability to help someone when you have something that you, when you have information that could help others to be able to, to give it away is really, really fulfilling. Let's talk a little bit dot complicated. Are you still doing dot complicated? I'm not. That was my first book. And then uh, I wrote a newsletter. I would say almost all my energy is on hug right now, but I mean, all kind of built to that. We, we do have a newsletter with hug where we called creator royalties, where we talk about, you know, anyone who's curious about being a creator in web three, we cover topics from like AI to doing commissions and everything. And then a lot of my focus right now is on our incubator that we call hug studios. We've had 50 creators and projects go through our incubator in the last year. And so that's where I I spend a lot of my mentoring energy and attention. So yeah, kind of have been been that slowly pivoting other areas of my time totally into web three, but it's an exciting place to be. So that's why I've been wanting to go all in there. It is the wild, wild west. And as you said, it doesn't have a playbook, which is why you're thriving so much. When you think of the landscape of everything you've done and you think ahead, is there anything you haven't done that is on your list? I mean, not many people in tech have a Tony, right? So what what haven't you done that that is a big audacious goal of yours? Yeah, gosh, you know, it's funny you say that because if you had told me even five years ago that I'd be like all in on crypto and web three, I would have like laughed. I would have been like, what's that? Like, <laughs> what are those vocabulary words that you're saying? And like, what is that? And so- I've sort of learned in my life to like not make five and 10 year plans to like really just be open to opportunities the universe gives you. Yes, Uh, I can feel that from you. I really can feel that. And the fact that you're (laughs) willing to just go down that road, that that what, what presents itself to you perhaps is the path. Totally. And a lot of things I've done have not worked out, you know, and yeah. it's okay because everything is, is a step that gets you towards the right direction and a learning opportunity. So, you know, who, honestly, who even knows what I'm going to be working on five years from now? Like, I don't know, I, web seven, I, I have no idea. Like what even is that? But, you know, I'm really excited and I hope that the through line, at least with everything is that I'm empowering other people to be creators and to live their dreams and to pursue uh, being creative entrepreneurs. Randy, how can people find you right now? Gosh, well, I'm uh, very available on social media. So uh, my Instagram, I'm Randy Zuckerberg, Twitter, LinkedIn are probably three of the, the biggest places I spend a lot of my time, of course, Facebook. And you can look at what we're doing at Hug if you're interested in Web3 of just like being a, a passive observer and learning, or if you're like interested in diving in with your own creative project, we're at thehug.xyz. And we love welcoming newcomers into Web3. We will definitely check it out. This has been an amazing conversation. I've loved meeting you and hearing your journey. So thank you, Randy. Thank you so much. It's been such a delight to chat with you today. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. 
You can find us on Instagram at To Dine For TV and Facebook at To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.